In our last episode, we began to scratch the surface of who God is and what it means when we say God is love. We learned that he isn't isolated, but relational. He's not up on a hill judging us or waiting for us to fail. He's not whispering to certain people, saying they're somehow more special or sent to condemn others. That just doesn't fit with who God has shown to be in verses like Deuteronomy 10.17, Ephesians 6.9, Galatians 3.28, John 13.34, and more. The revelations we made thus far may sound familiar, or they may be completely new. In the deconstruction of who God is not, what are you left with? Did it dislodge a misconception that you hadn't known you had been carrying? I've said it before and I'm going to keep saying it because it's helpful, but I invite you to notice the if-then structure. What happens when the if and the if-then thought process changes? In this episode, we continue our conversation with pastors and teachers David Ashrick and Ty Gibson to reconstruct our image of God. I'm your host, Nicole Dominguez, and this is Faith Reconstructed. There's no introduction, just in, in the beginning, God, dot, dot, dot. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. Those are the first four words of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. There's an observation that the story and character of humanity, God and the gospel, are found in the first three chapters of Genesis. This basically means you get everything you need to know in those three chapters, and everything else is commentary. Now that we've started to deconstruct, let's reconstruct a bit. I encourage you to look at chapters one through three of Genesis, but for right now, let's focus on the creation story itself. God is the first character introduced in the Bible. He's it. And the fact that we're meeting him before the existence of Earth is interesting because in seeing his process, we learn about him. Have you ever seen someone do a task like baking a cake or assembling a piece of furniture or something? Watching their process can reveal a lot. For example, if someone lines up and measures out all the ingredients, then follows the recipe closely until taking the baked goods out of the oven. The same can be said for God when we read the creation story. Every action sets up the next. He will create an environment and then fill it. He made the waters before he made the water creatures. He made the land, the fruit trees, oxygen, all in preparation for humanity's entrance into Earth. Now, don't miss this. God is creating a perfect environment for all our needs. This isn't slapdash or passive or apathetic. God is all-powerful. He could have done this in the blink of an eye, but he spoke the world into existence over the course of six days. This reveals a lot of things, but one is that God is intentional in everything he creates. And two, his words are formative. The reality that whatever he says comes into existence means that the promises he makes to humanity and the scriptures are reliable. In the same way, when we speak his promises, they're as good as fulfilled. When we move on to the creation of humanity, more about God and his intended purpose for us is being revealed. God created man from the earth and breathed his own breath into him to give Adam life, according to Genesis 2-7. Later, in verses 19 and 20, he gives Adam an occupation, making him a caretaker to the earth. And then, God creates a partner for Adam from his side, 
and Eve enters the dynamic. So right there at the beginning of the story, we have a very fascinating insight regarding the character of God in what God makes a social unit, a man and a woman with the capacity to procreate and expand the the social circle, right? Called the family, the nuclear family. The nuclear family is the revelation of the character of God in a sense. When it operates optimally, you have a social unit. This is this is a covenantal relationship. This is each one in the relationship um, existing um, with reference to the others. This is what comes to be known as covenant. Mm-hmm. This is a key idea in scripture. So think about it this way. God, apart from all creation, is a covenant integrity. Father, Son, mm. and Spirit, God is a covenant relationship. And then God, who is a relational dynamic of other-centered, self-giving love, Father, Son, and Spirit, creates a, a replica in the family unit. A replica of that covenant integrity is created in the family unit. Do you remember when we introduced the word agape in the last episode to describe the unconditional, all-encompassing love of God? Here's another word to add to your biblical lexicon. Throughout the Old Testament story, there is one word that is used more than any other word, like 260 times. There's not even a close second. And that word is hesed, H-E-S-E-D. It's translated different ways in different translations, but some of the words are as follows. The word hesed is translated as mercy, love, Mm -hmm. unfailing love, faithful love, constancy. The basic idea is constancy, which in a relational dynamic means loyalty and Mm -hmm. faithfulness. So that's the Old Testament concept, the Old Testament picture of God. God is Mm -hmm. said. God is covenantal loyalty, right? If, If you were given an assignment as a student in school, even at, the, even at the graduate level, and your assignment was, you must write a 1,000-word essay to describe the best conceivable configuration of reality. You couldn't come up with anything better than mm-hmm. multiple individuals coexisting with relational integrity loyalty, faithfulness. It is the best picture. The human mind can't go higher. You can't, Once you get to this idea of individuals coexisting with faithful love to one another without violating one another, once you've described that, you can't describe anything higher than that. There's nothing beyond that. This is the pinnacle of beauty. Ty makes a brilliant point. When imagining a utopia, a perfect world, nine times out of ten, that perfect world is one in which violation, disagreement, inequality, corruption, and pain are removed. History has shown people who have tried to create their version of utopia. However, the key factor that drives this reality is free will. That's the key ingredient that's missing when governments or leaders try to force their own perfect ideal on others. 
The ideal reality of respect and faithful love only exists when the person enters into that ideal with their own free will. Free will is the linchpin and the foundation of everything, especially love. There's a saying, love requires risk, risk requires freedom, and freedom requires choice. If you look at the suffering and pain that occurs in our world today, a good percentage of it is the result of the misuse of free will or the removal of another's free will. I, I think that... Um... One of the reasons that people wrestle with the idea that God is love, and we need to be we need to be sensitive to people's um, skepticism about this and their doubts about it, is because life is hard. In case you forgot, this is David Ashrick. Life life is hard, and the world is a is a terrible place, and it's not an easy thing to consistently and enthusiastically affirm the goodness of God in the face of ubiquitous evil. It's not. It wasn't for the prophets. Uh, you go read the Old Testament, you go read the, the Psalms, you are in good company. Let's go back to Genesis for a second. When God is giving Adam and Eve an orientation of Eden, he shows them the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For a long time, I was confused as to why God would add the tree into the garden if he didn't want them to eat from it. There are a lot of interpretations as to why God included the tree that would be a tool in the downfall of humanity. And some think that God was taunting his new creations, willing them to fail by leaning into humanity's desire to want what we can't have. But to suggest that would imply that God is masochistic. And as mentioned in the last episode, God wasn't looking for beings to provoke. Because God is love or agape, as mentioned, creating with the intention to hurt defies logic and breaks character. There is some to suggest that the tree just popped up. That doesn't work either since it doesn't fit with the intentionality found with how God created every single aspect of the world. Nothing slips God's notice, therefore it means that he allowed the tree to be added. So why would he do this? Because doing the right thing only matters if there is an alternative option. By adding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil into Eden, God was creating an environment of choice. Remember when we were talking about theodicy in the first episode and I mentioned the age-old question of why God doesn't do something when bad things happen? Let's loop back to that right now. Before I say anything, please remember that I'm still learning too, and I'm by no means the final authority and can only speak from my own study, learning from dozens of Bible teachers like David and Ty, following the logic of what God has shown to me about himself through his word and prayer. Taking the pieces of what I, David, and Ty have shown you thus far have to follow the if-then logic. If God is love, then he wants us to thrive. If God is love, then he created us out of love. If God is love, then he will give us free will to love him. Again, free will is risky. If you have the choice to love, there is also the risk that they will not love you back. God could have easily cloistered Adam and Eve and forced them to live in blissful ignorance of any alternative, but he didn't. 
He said in verses 16 and 17, this tree exists. I have given you millions of other trees to eat from, but trust me, you will die when you eat it. Now notice this, not I will kill you, but you will die. And they did. The story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4 is a biblical example of this. Cain didn't follow God's instruction, but became jealous of his brother and abused his free will by murdering Abel. In the garden, God was sharing the result of a misuse of free will. When horrible things happen, it's an abuse of free will. And like when we were kids and our parents told us not to put our hands in the oven or we'd be burned, our parents didn't cause the burn if we disobeyed. It's just the cause and effect. As Christians, we need to be extremely, um, not just sensitive to in the sort of, you know, emotional, you know, psychosocial healthy way, but just we need to orient ourselves to the difficulty of life into the brokenness and fallenness of the world in which we live and to help people to understand that this is not a reflection of God's heart. This is actually a, a consequence of something that the Bible reveals that is referred to as the great controversy or as the cosmic conflict, um, that something is going on here. In the words of uh, theologian Gregory Boyd, the world looks like a war zone because it is a war zone. And this is not a reflection of God's nature or God's disposition to the world, it's a reflection towards something that I think we all know intuitively. In fact, I'm, I'm absolutely persuaded about the idea that everybody knows that the external reality around them is a mirror of the internal reality that we all have. And that is a warring within ourselves to be better versions of ourselves, to be kinder, uh, nobler, more honest, more um, loving, but I think we all know in our heart of hearts that something is wrong with the world. And when we see injustice or we see overreach or we see oppression, we, we, something in us rails against, well, where's that coming? Where is that? If we are, you know, simply evolutionary products and we're programmed only for individual survival or perhaps the survival of our small community, why would we be so enraged when people are not treated well or treated fairly? Something in us tells us the world is broken. It's fundamentally broken. And so it's not a large step from the brokenness of the world to an obvious you know, awareness of the brokenness of the world to disbelief in God's goodness, which is where mm. the church comes in. The church has an educational responsibility. We have a, a, a responsibility to communicate to people how it's possible to simultaneously affirm the goodness and beauty and constancy of God in the face of ubiquitous evil. And happily for us, scripture gives us a solid platform on which to do that. David's point is a good one. Followers of Christ are called to present the balance of the existence of a God of love within a fallen world. But don't let this calling trick you into believing that you have to have all the answers. This podcast is for imperfect Christians and people with questions. It's better to lean into the questioning and allow God room to answer. I think it's unrealistic to expect that people are just going to reflexively say, oh yeah, oh, oh, you say that God is good, God is good. People have hard questions and questions that we don't always have the answers to. Sometimes we have to say, we don't know. In that, for instance, in that circumstance, in that historical situation, we don't know. But what we do know is that the God that has revealed himself in Christ is best known 
on mm. Calvary's tree. That's what we know. Yeah. Everything else is just our ignorance. It's not that God was good here and not good here. He was constant here and inconstant here. No, it's just that we don't see all of the details and all of the inputs that God in his omniscience had. And so we can't explain all mm. of God's individual decisions, but we can affirm his character and his goodness. When we become overwhelmed by certain events, past or present, keep in mind what David mentioned above. God revealed himself in Christ's sacrifice. In addition, as David said, there are a million different stories that exist within the millions of people on earth with points of view and life paths that we will never know, yet are all active participants and observers on singular events. God's ability to chart or impact someone's life is beyond our understanding. Our awareness must both be broadened and more focused. When we look at the suffering in the world, it's very interesting that, that people will say, myself included, which was a part of my process of coming to faith in Christ, my big question was, well, well, if God exists and God is good, how could something like the Holocaust take place? I can't believe mm. in the existence of a good God with evil like that on display in front of me. But here, you think about it like this. Okay, remove the existence of a good God from the equation. There you go. And all you have is the Holocaust but now you can't actually categorize it as evil. You can't even explain why you have this, this sense of justice rising up in you against it. You can't even pursue the answer to the question, and you certainly can't project forward to some kind of world in which such things as the Holocaust never occur, right? Because now you've removed the moral foundation upon which your hatred of the evil, at least with the existence of God and God is good, you can explain why you have a sense of justice and you can have hope for the removal of all such events from the world and from reality as a whole. But you know, the moment there is no God and we are merely evolutionary animals, scratching and clawing for survival, well, then you have to say, well, there's, there's nothing moral or immoral about anything. There's nothing good or bad, right or wrong. This is just humans doing what humans do. And so your strong sense of justice, you just need to get over it. It is what it is. We're all gonna be compost pretty soon anyway. And so none of it really mattered. And you have this inexplicable sense of justice that you have no way of grounding anywhere. So we're way better off with, with beginning with the premise of a, a moral love at the foundation of reality from which we can deduce the elimination of evil and the ultimate existence of a world in which such things never occur. Let's simplify that even further. What Ty is pointing out is that we need a standard for morality in order to classify something as wrong. If we had no standard for morality at all, then we would not feel anything towards abuse, corruption, or crimes against humanity. The very fact that we feel righteous anger at a wrong means that 
We know there is a right. So what does this have to do with God? Why is he the standard of morality? Let's remember God's character. God is love, perfect, moral love. God doesn't want anyone to suffer injustice. Think about if you found out a loved one was cheated by a corporation out of their retirement or was a victim of insurance fraud. You'd want justice. That cry for justice is partnered with an understanding of morality, which exists out of love. That love is trace DNA of being created by love itself. If somebody says to me, I don't believe in God, I'll begin by saying, well, describe to me the God you don't believe in. Yes. And they'll start describing attributes that in my mind I know don't belong to God, but they assume do belong to God because of their upbringing, because of some bad experience they've had in life, because of some religious hucksters that they saw on television saying things that that were contrary to reason. Um, so describe to me the God you don't believe in. And they will inevitably describe a God mm. that isn't worth believing in. Correct. And I'll just affirm them. And I'll say, man, your, your unbelief is very intelligent. You have a very, very rational, intelligent unbelief system. Mm. Amen. Your unbelief system is, is amazing because you have, you have chosen not to believe in some ugly, diabolical stuff. Because that's what they're going to describe. But then I'll follow up and I'll say, but if you could construct the best conceivable picture of God imaginable, what would that look like? I mean, if God could exist and be exactly the way you believe God should be, if God were to exist, and they will inevitably describe a God with attributes that are believable. The concepts David and Ty are explaining may take a long time to fully comprehend and may take even longer to fully believe. I have clinical anxiety and am by nature an overthinker and perfectionist, so I often catch myself defaulting to what my mind is used to believing because it's easier. I was really blessed to be raised in a home that presented a loving image of God, but even then, my anxiety made it challenging to believe it. I felt as though I was letting myself off the hook and somehow believing that God is love in practice was too easy. And I get it. For those who have been deeply hurt, it is easier to live with a God who's bad and controlling and distant than to set aside deep-seated prejudice that may be the result of genuine trauma that shaped a misrepresentation of who God is. If our foundational image of God was built on bad theology given by misinformed people, how do we rebuild? Where do we start? A good place to begin is in the Gospels. I think you just read the Gospel of John and you tell yourself over and over again on every page, at every opportunity, this person that I'm reading about is God. This is not just a a rabbi. It's not a person of historical significance. It's not a brilliant thinker or an unconventional uh, Jewish figure for, you know, that period This is what God is like. And then ask yourself this follow-up question. Could I come up with any better version of reality than that there is a God and that he looks like this person that I'm reading about? And you will not be able to do it. 
In the words of Alvin Plantinga, this is not only the greatest story ever told, the story of Jesus and his faithfulness and his, his uh, life, death, and resurrection. He says, this is not only the greatest story ever told, this is the greatest story that ever could be told. One thing that is abundantly clear is that God is consistent. He didn't undergo a PR change somewhere between the New Testament and the Old Testament. In many ways, it would be easier to leave our beliefs intact, defaulting to our comfort zone. Deconstruction and reconstruction requires letting go of beliefs and interpretations that may have been the bedrock of our worldviews, and that causes a lot of uncomfortable confrontation. Reconstruction is frankly the right word because it's a complete reconfiguration of reality as you have up to that point practiced it. It, mm -hmm. it doesn't change a thing. It doesn't change some things. It doesn't even change, change most things. It changes everything. The way everything. you think, the way you spend your money, the way you think about the world, the way you recreate, mm -hmm. the way you interact, the way you forgive, the way you choose to marry, the way... Th there's not one thing that lies outside the purview of what happens in an individual's life if you come to genuinely believe that the nature of reality is that there is a God and he is love and we can see what that looks like in the person of Jesus. Everything changes. Everything. Everything, I'll just add, everything changes for the better. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> The episodes that follow will be an exploration of that everything. When we not only know of God, but know God for who he truly is, things make a lot more sense. There's a belonging and clarity that comes with building a relationship with God when the misconceptions surrounding his character are removed. Deconstruction and reconstruction happen in tandem. Whatever we remove, we replace. And this is a lifelong process. This two-part episode is just the starting point, and I encourage you to check out more of Ty Gibson and David Ashrick's ministries and sermons, such as the amazing roundtable series through their ministry, Lightbearers, Arise, their discipleship program that goes over the foundation of Christian beliefs, and sermons through Storyline Church, and many others. Other amazing resources are Steps to Christ and Desire of Ages, both written by Ellen G. White, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, Holier Than Thou by Jackie Hill Perry, and God in Pain by David Ashrick. I can't promise you won't make mistakes or be tempted to stick with the familiar, at, at least I have, but that's okay. We have a patient God who loves us unconditionally and is eager to join us in the process. You've been listening to Faith Reconstructed. Each episode is hosted, written, and produced by me, Nicole Dominguez, edited by Katrina Simbaku, logo design and social media by Chelsea Ernina, tech and equipment support by Steve Husett and James Gigante, project support by Heather Moore, special thanks to the North American Division and the Adventist Learning Community for making this podcast possible. Thank you for listening. Adventist Learning Community Podcast.